0: Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. We're in a series, uh, until. are we there yet? It's a study in the book of Exodus and beyond. And I want to talk to you today about the stance of faith. This message today is far more relevant today than I intended. It, it, it happens to just align with certain world events uh, that are taking place. Um, so, please don't read any political uh, aspects into this. Um, it is interesting, though, as we've seen the horror of what uh, Hamas unleashed. We see the sadness of what is taking place in Gaza and and all that's part of that. But also, uh, it's been interesting to note the, I've never seen this before in my lifetime ever, um, the widespread hatred of Jews, I mean, around the world. And again, I can separate the state of Israel from the Jewish people. Uh, the modern state of Israel is not necessarily the biblical one that was a theocracy, it's a secular state, any more than the scriptures that apply to Egypt or other countries apply necessarily today. But the Jewish people are a different thing. And I think one should note um, that there is the most pervasive hatred around the world of the Jewish people like I've never seen before. And the students that we have that are, are marching and, and doing all this involved with that, and people have, have called them different names and I, I wouldn't do that. I, I think there is a, a term that applies. Uh, I think they are utter, uh, utterly, and I would, I would use the A word, um, you know, the, the A and H, and I would call them utter, completely ahistorical in what they're doing. Um, they don't understand history. So, it's, it's in the context of all this going on, and statements even made... Um, Recently, by one of our representatives in our state, who then was rebuked actually by a member of her own party in the state, and using a term from the river to the sea, which is an anti Semitic statement. It's trying to say otherwise, but it's basically saying that from the River Jordan to the Mediterranean Sea, that in essence they'll try and dance around, it, but that no Jewish persons still exist. If they don't exist there, where do they exist? Again, this is not a political conversation today. But I think you're going to find some of this potentially interesting. So, as we go along, let me walk you through several points in history. I'm going back a bit in time to one of the great empires in history, and in the capital city of this great empire um, sits at one place uh, a, a, a man um, high up in authority who is sitting in his room gleefully awaiting the construction of a gallows outside his window and hearing the pound of the hammers and, and the, the sawing of the wood as he awaits that construction with somewhat of a gleeful sense. Across town is a woman who is preparing uh, a, a meal of time, and she's nervous. She's anxious, twisting perhaps uh, clothing in the process of that, and those two are juxtaposed in this capital of this ancient, in this ancient uh, um, empire. We go back a little bit further in history, and we find um, a king who has just completed a battle against another people, and he has imprisoned their king and is happy about that. And then another person walks up, and as they begin to converse, they bring that fallen king before them, and the second man takes out a sword and just cuts him to pieces, this fallen king. And then we go back even a little bit further, and we arrive at where we begin our conversation here today um, in the book of Exodus. Children of Israel have just um, starving for water and dried out. God provides water out of a rock that uh, Moses strikes. And then we have this Exodus chapter 17, verse 8 while the people of Israel were still at Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. Moses commanded Joshua to choose some men to go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. Who are the Amalek? Amalek was. um, You've got. You've got. Abraham had had had, had, uh, Jacob and Esau, and from, um, or rather, after Jacob and Esau, they split. Jacob becomes Israel. Um, Esau has a son named Amalek. So there's some family connection here. There also would have been awareness that God had ordained these people. Um, So they're going to battle the army of Amalek. This is the first battle that Israel's facing. They have not fought any wars up until this time. God fought for them with the Egyptians. This is going to be a different scenario," he says. "Choose some men, Joshua, and go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. Tomorrow, I'll stand at the top of the hill, holding the staff of God in my hand." So Joshua did what Moses had commanded, and he fought the army of Amalek. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron, and Ur—Moses, um, uh, his brother Aaron, and Ur—by rabbinic tradition uh, is thought to be uh, Moses's brother-in-law, Miriam, his sister's husband. They go up to the top of a nearby hill. As long as Moses held up the staff in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he dropped his hand, the Amalekites gained the advantage. Why did they go up to this hill? Um, they went up there so they could see, so they could be seen, and so they could pray. They had no communications in those times. So to be able to see what's going on in the battle, they need that raised place, and commanders would often do that. So, able to per- perceive what's taking place. Notice also, Joshua takes a picked band of men. Not everyone was up to this task. He takes somewhat of a uh, those who would have been viewed maybe more a leader, more prepared in some way to go and fight this battle. They go up there to see. They go up there to be seen because Moses is a a type of totem. He's a type of representation of the people. They're encouraged if they see Moses because him and God are connected. So if Mo's okay, then we're we're okay. So he's there to be seen. But his primary purpose in going up there appears to have gone up there to pray. He takes the rod that God had given him and he raises it up and it's an act of prayer and it says that whenever he dropped his hand the Amalekites gained the advantage but as long as he was up in prayer then they were succeeding. It became so obvious to them that it says in verse 12 Moses' arms soon became so tired he could no longer hold them up. So Aaron and Ur found a stone for him to sit on and they stood on each side of Moses holding up his hands so his hands held steady until sunset. As a result Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in battle. And this is one of the the most vivid illustrations we see of the importance of prayer. In this case, the life or death of Israel depended on the prayers of one man. Prayer cannot be minimized. There is a time to not pray, as we talked about a few weeks ago, and there's a time to do what God said and take action and to move on. But there is also a time to pray and the importance of that. Moses' prayer, and it's an interesting side thing we won't get into, but the idea that he had an Aaron and an Ur, and this is talked oftentimes of those who would come alongside those who would pray or those who would lead and lift their arms and hold them up when they get tired. Another conversation. And so this is a really significant portion of what takes place in this conversation. Now, what continues on after this is in verse 14. After the victory, Lord instructed Moses, write this down in a scroll as a permanent reminder And read it aloud to Joshua, and it's this. I will erase the memory of Amalek from under heaven. That's a pretty harsh thing. He's going to wipe this people group out. I don't even want their memory around, okay? Why is it that he was so intense on on wiping out Amalek? A couple of reasons. One is that Amalek um, was a particularly brutal thing. They had attacked Israel knowing that they were God's chosen. So it wasn't just against Israel. It was also an affront against God. These people had just come out of uh, Egypt. They were still exhausted. They were still tired. We find in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 19, a, a greater expansion of understanding. Never forget what the Amalekites did to you as you came from Egypt. They attacked you when you were exhausted and weary. They struck down those who were straggling behind. They had no fear of God. So without warning... Those that were straggling behind, and they had no fear of God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies in the land, has given you as a special possession, you must destroy the Amalekites and erase their memory from under heaven. Never forget this. From this and other passages, we can gather that that they had not done a frontal assault against them. What they had been doing, possibly for a little period of time, is coming along to the stragglers behind the column. Picking off, in other words, those who were too weak or too old or were women or children from behind the column and also where the baggage or the possessions of the people would have been. They were known for being plunderers. They were basically bandits or pirates. They wanted the stuff. But they also brutally picked off those that were weak. God's offense is that they went after the weak. They went after the stragglers. They did it for no reason other than their own desires and plunder, and they did it as an offense before God. There's deeper reasons with the Amalekites. We'll get to that in a moment, but let's back up to Exodus chapter 17, and again going to that verse 14 through 15 here. Moses, after he's being told about this erasure, he then builds an altar, and he calls it Yahweh Nisi, which means the Lord is my banner. And he said they've raised their fist against the Lord's throne, so now the Lord will be at war with Amalek. And notice this generation, after generation, generation after generation. So he builds an altar, a memory point, an Ebenezer, a memory stone to mark the spot of what had taken place. And then he calls it, the Lord is my banner, or Yahweh is my banner. Um, He knew his prayers were important But Moses was not foolish enough to think that he'd been the one to win the battle. A little side note, too. Remember Moses when he was young? He didn't think about praying. He took about action. He himself was going to fix everything. He's going to kill this Egyptian. He's going to do all this stuff. There's been some maturing in him, not complete, but some. And now he's leaning into prayer and leaning into God being the one to do it. And so he marks the spot, and he calls it, The Lord is my banner. And this doesn't translate well for us today. When you think of a banner, we're thinking like, you know, homecoming banners or whatever like that. This was referring to a flag, and it was a victory flag, the idea is that the God is victorious in battle, and this is his flag of victory. It's not Moses' flag. It's not Joshua's flag. It's not Israel's flag. You ever watch a, a, um, is it, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers? My kids used to love those when they were playing years back. And whenever they used to, I don't know if they do the same, but when they would score, some guy would run around with the pirate flag, okay, the Buccaneers flag, all around the stadium and waving the flag. We just scored. Same thing. We're going to raise a flag or a banner. But it's not the Buccaneers. Okay? It's not. Um, Moses. It's not Joshua's. Instead, it's the banner of God and saying it's because of God that we've won this victory. And so he marks that very specifically. That's an important issue to take note of. Back to the Amalekites. Both in this passage and in the one we read in Deuteronomy, it says there's to be war. It says to erase their memory. It says that this is going to go on Generation after generation. Why? They pick on the weak and defenseless. They did it for self-gain for no other purpose. They um, stood against God and raised their fists to him. And they picked on Israel when they were just fresh out of a victory to try to take advantage of their tiredness and win that. They also had some other really ugly traits that added to this probably. They particularly served god, Moloch. We've discussed this briefly before. Um, William F. Albright, a very famous archaeologist, once described their religion as perhaps, quote, perhaps the most depraved religion known to man. Moloch was a god that, um, that thrived on not just human sacrifice, but child sacrifice. And a lot of the altars would be a brazen or a metal-type figure that with arms outstretched, they'd be superheated, and then they'd lay the child upon that, and they'd be sacrificed in that way. Um, it was a horribly painful, uh, terrible death. And um, this was part of what they were about. The Amalekites were just not people that you wanted to have over for lunch. So God has marked them and not only marked them, but marked them as something that there's going to be an ongoing generational conflict with. There's a conversation that we're not going to have today as to how it is that that God would ordain the complete wiping out, and there's several times this happens in the Old Testament, the complete wiping out of a people. In fact, as we'll see in a moment of time, he mandates not only the killing of every man, woman, and child, but of um, every animal. And some of that rabbinic tradition goes to that says that uh, um, uh, the Amaleks were known as great sorcerers and they could turn themselves into animals. It's possible that they dressed up in some way in their attacks. and so The idea is you wiped out all the animals because someone could be disguised. Uh, the other concept is that um, anything that belonged to them, any memory. So we can't say that was an Amalekite's goat. Everything was to be wiped out. There are some that want to take some refuge in the idea that, that children under a certain age are covered under a certain element of grace. We know that David, when when he has a sin with Bathsheba and he's a baby he comes out of that and then becomes ill and he prays over that child and fasts over that child and that, that child dies, he is clear that, that, and he says, I will go to him, but I, he will not come to me. In other words, he sees this child as innocent and going to heaven and not have contact there. So there's a, a grace that God seems to afford for babies, for young children, at what point that changes. That whole conversation we're not going to try and get into here today. Uh, it's, it's an important one, and it's one we need to touch on, but we need to continue on today a bit. All we know is that there was going to be a complete ending of this people group. Now we go to the next scene of what we just talked about, and we flash forward to a couple of generations in the land of Israel, now established, and Samuel, the last judge who's ruled over them, the people are clamoring for a king, and, and so Samuel allows for that. God directs him to do that, so he establishes a king. their very first king, a guy from the tribe of Benjamin, and a guy we're going to see later is named from that same tribe. And so um, he's now king, King Saul. Beautiful moment in the sense that here's a guy who is in political power, Samuel, and he willingly lets it go and establishes the next guy and reinforces him. But there's a breaking point at one point in time in their relationship, and you can look it up in 1 Samuel 15, because Samuel's directed by God to go to uh, Saul and say, look, at the Amalekites still exist And they've continued to do raids, continued to do problems. You're to wipe them all out this time. Just clean them all out. That's not what happened in Exodus. But now you're given the directive. Completely take them out. And so Saul rises everyone up. They have a tremendous victory. And they're celebrating when Samuel comes walking in on the scene. And as he comes walking in, Saul calls out to him and says, The Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, Then what is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? And Saul answered, "Uh, the soldiers bought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle um, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Yeah, yeah, we totally destroyed the rest. But, I mean, these we kept not for ourselves. No, no, those, those would be sacrificed. And that's why he tries to slide out of it. Samuel, his response is enough. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. He says, although you were once small in your own eyes... You did not become the head of the tribe of Israel. The Lord anointed you king over Israel. He sent you on a mission to go and completely destroy these wicked people. But you didn't do that. Samuel says, But Saul says, Saul says But I did. I went on a mission. I even brought back Agag, their king. See, he's over here right now, which Samuel's saying, so You didn't even kill off the king yet. And the rest I gave as a, as a sacrifice, there to be devoted as a sacrifice. And Samuel says, Did the Lord delight? And this is where David gets some of his teachings, because Samuel was King David's mentor. Does the Lord delight in burnt sufferings and sacrifice as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. And this passage that's been lost over the time, for rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft, and arrogance is like the evil of adultery. And then he says, as a result of this, you've lost the kingdom, and they come to a separational point. Um, before he leaves, though, uh, Samuel says, bring me Agag, the, this king of the Amalekites. So he's brought before him Agag. Scripture says he's brought and changed, but he's, he's pretty chilled on things. He's thinking, and he says, surely the bitterness of death is past. In other words, the, 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 surely the heat of the battle, I mean, they've let me live this time. We're going to negotiate. We're going to work something out here. It's not a problem. In verse 33, Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. The actual translation says that he hacked him to pieces, basically, in that moment of time. So we go from Exodus to the moment of Saul. And then we come up to this next portion of time. And to this, we come around to the Persian Empire generations later. Israel has, has seen many kings rise and fall. They've been conquered once or twice, and they were carried off. And, and at one point in time, some of these people are, are enmeshed in the Persian Empire. There's the king of that time, we believe, was Exerxes first. And yes, if you've ever seen the movie The 300, then you have seen Xerxes. I would also add the movie 300 is possibly the worst historical movie that's ever been made, practically, okay? And especially as it portrays Xerxes as this bizarre fiend of piercings and almost demonic figure. In fact, he was an incredibly sophisticated individual of his time, and that in no way portrays what took place there. And so as you go into this area of the capital with this woman in one area and this other man over here with the gallows, then the story plays out as this. The Jewish people are held there. Um, Xerxes has this queen, but he, he, he and her have a falling out. We won't get into the details of that, but she's put aside, and he's looking for a new queen. And he finds a queen and a woman named Esther. Well, Esther has an uncle named Mordecai. They're both of the tribe of Benjamin. Again, this is generations removed from both Exodus and Saul. And um, as the story unwinds, Exerxes, at one point in time, uh, Mordecai, who's outside, hap- the gate happens to hear a plot to kill him, and he reports it, and therefore saves the king's life. It's recorded in the Book of Remembrance, but nothing's ever done about that. Along comes another guy named Haman. Haman is a prideful, arrogant man, very insecure. He's made the second highest in the kingdom, just under Xerxes. Every goes out, everyone bows to him. Uh, Mordecai doesn't bow to him and there's several reasons for this and has to do with some issues between these two people and these two people groups. And so Haman's very upset over that. He's angry, and out of revenge, he plots how to deal with Mordecai and all his people. And he tells Xerxes, there's a people here in the empire, and they're not really integrated with us too well. And actually, I don't think they like you too much, and I'll take care of them for you. In fact, I'll even put up the money. In fact, he says he'll put up like two-thirds of the annual treasury to pay this off, to, to pay to have this done. King says, Don't worry about that, just get it done. So he signs the law. Now the thing about the law of Persians, once it's signed, it cannot be revoked. So he signs the death penalty for all the Jewish people in the Persian Empire to take place about eleven months from now or so. Well, when this is heard, Mordecai is disturbed. He he tries to let Esther know what's going on, and and Esther's disturbed. And Mordecai says, "Everyone doesn't know that you're Jewish, but you know they're going to find out you too. So you have to do something." He says, "What can I do? I can't go before the king. The king only calls you. You never show up, and I haven't even seen him in a month." Yeah, he's, he, we're married, but you know he's got things to do. He's got to invade Greece, you know, all that stuff, and so we don't see each other too often. And if I go into his presence without it, him asking for it. I can be executed. He says, girl, you got to do what you got to do, okay? Sometimes we're placed in a position for such a time as this that God has his place. A lot of us hope for a place that God will put us in where he can be used. The place you're at right now is where he wants you to be used at. You might want to think about that sometime. So he goes ahead, and she goes ahead, and she prays up, and then she walks in, and, and the king's surprised, but... But he likes when he extends his scepter. She touches that and says, What's your wish? She says, I'd like you to come. You and Haman, I'd like to make a dinner for you. Why don't you guys come over for dinner? He's like, OK. So they go to dinner that night, have a nice time. He says, If this is really pleased, let's have dinner tomorrow night. He says, OK. He goes home. And while he's at home, he's, he's just can't sleep. You know, even kings get a little bit you know, insomnia going, and this was pre-melatonin. So he just, he just goes ahead and, and he says, look, why don't you bring a book? You, you over there, bring the book of remembrance, read to me. The way you read, uh, I'll be asleep like that, okay? So the guy comes and he reads, and as he's reading along, he reads about Mordecai and his saving of the king. And the king perks up, he says, wait a minute, uh, where, what did we do for him? Where does it say, oh, we didn't do anything for him. This guy saved my life, and we didn't do anything for him? No, we didn't. Oh, that's not right. Okay, now I can't sleep at all. I mean, call up Haman. Haman, come on in here. Haman, I got some ideas in mind. Let me ask you, how would you, uh, uh, really, if, if you were the king, how would you want to honor someone and really show them privilege and honor? And Haman's sitting there thinking, because self-centered, insecure people always think you're talking about them. So he says, well, I would say um, give them your royal horse, have one of a high official lead him around and proclaim loudly the king's favor. And Exercius is sitting here saying, good idea. Haman, and Haman's like, yes? And he's like, there's this guy named Mordecai. Take him and do this with him. And Haman's like, are you serious? Yes, my king. And he goes out and he has to put him on the horse. He has to proclaim loudly how wonderful Mordecai is, who he hates. He is so upset. He has a gallows made. And we sit here and think, okay, gallows, that means like the Western-style hanging type thing. No. Gallows in this time period would have meant a large wooden pole sharpened on the top where you took the individual and by their legs took them and impaled them on the pole until it came out their neck. I know, lovely. 75 feet high. This was common for the Persians. It became common later for the Romans. Later they switched this over to crucifixion. This was the way it was done. So all this is fixed and all this is done. When the next night the meal is about to take place and, and while they're at the meal, um, finally Esther um, shares what's on her heart. King, all the Jews are going to be killed. Yeah, Who cares? I'm a Jew. Oh, wait a minute. This makes us personal now a bit. Um, okay, what's this all about? Haman wants us all dead. This guy hates us and the king is upset. He's realized that he's not been told the full truth. He's been kind of made a fool of. He goes off to think about this outside. He's a little upset. Meanwhile, Haman is so completely freaked out by what's going on that he goes to Queen Esther, and they would have been reclined in the oriental fashion upon couches in those times to eat, that he falls at her feet or falls upon the couch to beg her for intercession. Rabbinic tradition says that that actually Gabriel tripped him so that he fell, but whatever. He ends up there. The king walks in, sees him prostrate on the queen, and says, what are you thinking? You're going to do this in my own house? He says, you're done. And he goes out and has him hanged or impaled on the same gallows, the same thing that he had planned for the other. Sounds like a good ending of the story, except for the fact that you can't repeal the law. And so there's a begging then, can you write a new one that allows the Jewish people to prepare and to defend themselves? He says, oh yeah, I can do that. And so they do that. And as the story goes on in the book of Esther, the Jews defend themselves They're able to handle themselves well, and all this other people group is, in fact, instead extinguished. Let's go to Esther chapter 8, and you'll understand maybe why this links in to the previous two passages. Esther chapter 8, the same day King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the state of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he reclaimed from Haman, and presented to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite. In other words, this guy is related to someone named Agag. Are you tracking this? Saul, tribe of Benjamin, wiped them all out, but he doesn't do it. Agag somehow survives long enough to procreate, evidently, and there's some that falls online here. And so these were the Amalekites again. It took a woman to finish them off. And so the Amalekites are completely eliminated at that point in time. The statement. From the River to the Sea is an ahistorical, anti-Semitic statement. I don't say that as politics. I say that as an historian. There has been a nonstop attempt to eliminate the Jewish people. And we've just walked this through, just a portion of it. But you need to listen closely to the next part. Because the Prime Minister of Israel, interestingly enough, just made a speech, I guess. I didn't hear it last weekend. Where he referenced the Amalekites. And there were those that jumped on him because he thought, they thought he was invoking it as saying, we need to kill every man, woman, child, and beast. And that's not what he was referencing. And others have corrected that. But you need to understand that there has been an ongoing persecution. <clears throat> the Jews have been exterminated or exiled from practically every piece they've ever called home. Samaria in 7333 BC, Judea 586 BC, Jerusalem 70 AD by the Romans, who incidentally at that time renamed the land Palestine in an allusion to the Philistines and to wipe it out from the Jewish tradition. England 1290, France 1394, Spain 1492 when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, the Jews all got expelled from Spain. Ukraine, 1648, Russia in late 18th and 19th century, where the term pogrom, which means an organized destruction of a people group, not program, pogrom, was initially um, uh, stated and used. Eastern Europe from 1933 to 1945. In fact, in Judaism, there's an old joke uh, and says that all Jewish rituals, they can be summed up with this phrase, they tried to kill us, we survived, let's eat. In other words, it was just such a casual part, an ongoing part of what was going in. So when we hear the term Malachi, when we hear a prime minister invoking that, then it appears to be talking about the destruction of an entire people group. And that's not what it's referencing. You see, what happened is over time, Amalek came to mean remembering an enemy that preys on the weak and poses an existential threat to the Jewish people, any people that did that. In Judaism, the Amalekites came to represent the archetypical enemy of the Jews. In Jewish folklore, the Amalekites are considered to be the symbol of evil. The Amalekites, as time, came to represent an eternal, irreconcilable enemy that wants to murder Jews, that Jews in post-biblical times sometimes associate with contemporary enemies, whether it was Haman or the Amalekites, Groups in the past that they identify with, Amalek, included the Romans, Nazis, Stalinists, ISIS, Hamas. When he's mentioning this, he's drawing off a biblical tradition, but not one that means the eradication of a people, but one that says there's an applicable enemy that goes way back, that takes its form in many different ways in many different countries, including our own that hates Jews. Why? Because that's the bloodline of Jesus Christ. And Satan hates that. Why? Take the time sometime to look at the different groups that are linking together. It's very interesting. They have very little in common with some of the people that they're protesting for. In fact, if someone showed up in the place that they're protesting for, they would be killed themselves. Why is there an alliance such there is? Again, a time for another conversation. But there's a spirit runs through this. Now, the Jewish um, tradition and the rabbinic tradition would take this further. Not just a symbol of evil, But it would say to them, Hasidic rabbis particularly, Amalek represents atheism or the rejection of God. They're referred to as the scoffer, which can apply to any of us in this room regardless of of, of heritage. Hasidic philosophy explains that Amalek represents the pinnacle of evil, the ability to know God and intentionally rebel. Most evil can be combated by arguments of reason, they said. Not so Amalek. He cynically scoffs at every reason to do good, sowing doubt and confusion. Irrational doubt neutralizes the most convincing arguments or inspiring experiences. Amalek is the constant doubter, brazenly rushing to any sign of passion for holiness and cooling things down. This is the snapshot of evil in this world. It happens to be maybe currently unusually applied towards the Jewish people. But as I said before, Satan's not too thrilled about you either. Amen. There's a battle that is being fought, and it's not on the battlefields over in the Middle East. It's fought inside this room here. It's fought in your home. It's fought in your workplace. It's fought in your own heart and mind. And it's the struggle of evil. It's dealing with evil that actually exists Romeo Dallaire, who was the commanding UN peacekeeping forces in Rwanda, 93 to 94, when more than 800,000 Tutsi Rwandans were slaughtered over three months, Dallaire said that what happened made him believe in evil, even a force he called the devil. Quote, I've negotiated with him, he told us, shaken his hand. Yes, there's no doubt in my mind, and the expression of evil to me is through the devil and the devil at work and possessing human beings and turning them into machines of destruction. And one of the evenings, looking in my office, one of the evenings in my office, I was looking out the window, and my senses felt that something was out there that shifted me, that was there with me, that shifted me. I think that evil and good are playing themselves out, and God is monitoring and looking at how we respond to it. There's an evil that exists, and it runs through the line of our own heart, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn would say. Scott M. Peck is a psychiatrist who studied the issue of evil probably more than any other psychiatrist that I know of. Eventually he came to faith in Christ, didn't live it out perfectly, but he, he committed to that. And he said this, he found working with convicted prisoners, he rarely found evil. He finally decided this, quote, the central defect of evil is not the sin, but the refusal to acknowledge it. Not the sin, but the refusal to acknowledge it. He goes on to say that this is why um, oftentimes Jesus would deal more severe with the religious leaders than the prostitutes and tax collectors. Evil is described by Peck as militant ignorance. The original Christian tradition and Judeo-Christian concept of sin is a process that leads us to miss the mark, that's literally what it means, and fall short of perfection. Peck argues that while most people are conscious of this, at least on some level, those that are evil actively and militantly refuse this consciousness. He considers those he calls evil to be attempting to escape and hide from their own conscience through self-deception. One of his views was that people who are evil attack others rather than face their own failures. And then according to Peck, he said an evil person, this, is constantly self-deceiving with the intent of avoiding guilt and maintaining a self-image of perfection. Deceives others as a consequence of their own self-deception projects his or her evil sins onto very specific targets, scapegoats, while appearing perfectly normal to everyone else. Commonly hates with the pretense of love. There's a hatred, but I act like I'm loving for the purposes of self-deception as much as to dece- deceive others. We're hearing the word love tossed around in this country more than ever before, and it's got very little to do with love. It has a massed evil hatred self-deceiving and deceiving others, it abuses political power, uh, power, maintains a high level of respectability and lies incessantly to do so, is unable to think from the viewpoint of their victim, of their scapegoat, ever. Most evil people realize the evil deep within themselves but are unable to tolerate the pain of introspection or to admit to themselves they're evil. Thus, they constantly run away from their evil by putting themselves in a position of moral superiority and putting the focus of evil on others Proverbs chapter 15 verse 28 the heart of the, of the godly thinks carefully before speaking while the wicked overflows with evil words in combating this evil think carefully of what you're speaking don't rush to your keyboard don't rush to your social media think carefully before you type or before you think as you engage this combat Proverbs 3.6 says seek his will in all you do and he'll show you which path to take and helps you to turn away from evil. Ephesians chapter 6 says this is a battle not against flesh and blood. It's not against political entities or an elephant or, or, or a donkey. But it's against something spiritual, something profoundly ugly and evil that has lasted for generation upon generation. It's the spirit of Amalek. And racism is one of its ugliest forms. And anti one of the worst of the racisms. That's why we're told in Ephesians chapter 6 that we are to put on the full armor, and then to stand. And this message today is entitled, The Stance of Faith. And a stance means the way in which someone stands especially a sports person or, 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 or a wrestler or, or a batter or, or, or a military person. There's a stance that they deliberately take that prepares them for what's taking place. And so I want to encourage you today to recognize there is an evil in this world. And while it targets particularly right now in this time and place and throughout all time, the Jewish people because of the bloodline of Christ, it also targets you and me. And the battle's not going to be won in the political arena. There are no messiahs out there, guys. We have one, and his name is Christ. Do not let the cross be confused. Be politically engaged. Take your faith into that arena, but don't get co-opted by it. Or too quickly, you find yourself becoming the very monster that you are trying to fight." And Frederick Nietzsche statement, "This is battle not with monsters, lest you become a monster. And if you gaze into the abyss, the abyss gazes also into you. We become more fascinated by that which is ugly and that which is evil than we are by that which is good and that which is righteous. And so before long, we become ugly and dark ourselves. We know more about all the terrorists and all the people on the opposite side of the equation than we know about what is true and what is faithful and what is right. The spirit of Amalek continues on. And it calls each and every one of us to be a part of that. And today, you can even resist what is being said here and saying this was some kind of a political conversation. It was not. It was a biblical historical study. And as much as I care about the Jewish people and about all races that are oppressed, including those that are Palestinian, what I care about this day is you. What I'm aware of is me. And the fact that there is a battle that is fought in our workplaces, in our homes, in our church, in our own hearts, in our own minds. Romans chapter 12 says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right. If possible, live it out right without a conflict, but don't repay evil for evil. And then this last point of encouragement to this day before we close this. You can sit here and say, yeah, we see the evil. We see the conflict. We see the darkness in our political realms. We see the failing of church leaders and the problems within the church. We see the failings in our own heart and mind because I'm not self-deceived, which on the good side, I guess, means maybe I'm not evil. But on the downside means I really feel lousy because I just really sin a lot. Well, rejoice in that. You're not evil then, okay? At least you're conscious of it. But we struggle with that. And for you today, closure, John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus speaking, he says, I've told you these things, all the stuff I've told you, so that in me you may have peace, not fear and conflict. In this world, you will have trouble. Promise you. But take heart. Take heart. Why? Who's the I? That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Joshua didn't just fit the battle of Jericho. He also fought the Amalekites. Joshua's name means salvation. In the language of the Scripture, especially in the time of the New Testament, it translates out as Jesus. Joshua's a type of Christ. Joshua fights his people's enemies and overcomes them. And then he leads his people into the Promised Land. In the same way, Jesus Christ fought our enemy he doesn't do it and things transition in the New Testament it's no longer warfare with sword and flame instead our Joshua our Yeshua offers his life instead of taking lives he asks his followers to pick up their cross, deny themselves and follow him not to wipe out entire groupings of people it says we're to come and humble ourselves before God. and says that for all our sin and if we truly face the evil that resides within us and that if we take that and repent and confess that before God, that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross wipes that slate clean and we can live in a new community called the kingdom of God. This morning we're going to partake of communion together. You do not have to be a member of this church to join us. Ours is an open communion. You do need to be a follower of Christ. If you've not repented of that sin, accepted Christ's work on the cross and embraced that, then just let it pass you by today. But if you have, then we welcome you to join us. And as this is being dispensed today, we we just ask that you'd hold it. We'll take of it together. And the bottom cup is the bread and the top one is the wine. Hold it. We'll take of it together. But as we do this, I would encourage you, take this as a time. This can be a great time of celebration, but today, let's take it as a time of deep introspection. The evil people, the evil person won't do that. They shove introspection away. They don't want to look inside. They'd rather look at an abyss and blame everyone else and look at everyone else, but, but the follower of Christ stops in moments like this and ask the Holy Spirit to look in their heart and say, in what way do I offend you yet, God? In what way am I self-deceiving? In what way am I caught up with hatred for another people? Search my heart, oh God, David says. Know me. So this morning, as we conclude this time, and as we prepare to take a stance of faith, leaving this place, let us first take a posture of repentance. Father, in the midst of the insanity that is this world right now, all the hatred, all the hatred posing as love even, Lord, we come before you. We ask, Lord, in this moment of time that, God, you would just speak to us. We open ourselves to your inspection, to our introspection, as we receive this day in Jesus' name. Amen. So go into this week. One, face the truth of who you are. Unveil it before God. Don't push it back, don't deny it. But don't get so caught up looking at that abyss and the darkness of others that you become a student of that and transformed by it. Second, think carefully. Evil just pops off. Think carefully before you speak, type, press, send, any of that type of stuff. And finally, then, realize that prayer is more important than you might think. Nations rise and fall by it. God does have good plans for you, and evil will be vanquished. In the meantime, hold the line. Have a stance of faith and hold. Next week, Ryan Hall will be here with us. I encourage you to be here and join us for that. So we have a special time. Father, we thank you for your grace. I thank you, Lord, that that while evil may rise its face in different ways generation to generation, that your grace prevails way beyond that and over every form that it may take. We pray, Lord, for peace in this world. We pray, Lord, for wisdom and understanding. Give us strength, Lord God. Give us wisdom, I pray. We commit these things into your hands in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. Amen.